Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have to study together. Thank you, Lord, for your watch care over us this past week. And Lord, now as we're about to open the word to study, we just ask that you'd please be with us. Guide us with your Holy Spirit, O Lord. Speak to our hearts so gently that we might understand the word that we're about to look at. And more than anything else, the message that you have for us, may that reign supreme above anything else. May Jesus be lifted up at this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are looking at the faith of Moses. And I've entitled it part one because you see, in Hebrews chapter 11, there is quite a lot of text, a lot of description that is given to Moses. I think Abraham is probably the top in terms of his life and description given, but we're going to spend a few weeks on the faith of Moses. Let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're starting in verse 24. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 24. This is what the Bible says. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. We started there in verse 24, and about three weeks ago, we studied verse 23 about the faith of Moses' parents, okay? They would be the one that would set the foundation and lay the table for Moses to walk in this life of faith. Now, a very interesting side note. Do you know that Moses, the name Moses, was not actually given by his biological mother? It was actually given by the daughter of Pharaoh, okay? It was given by the daughter of Pharaoh that actually gave that name to Moses, and you read it in Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. But anyways, in Hebrews eleven twenty four, we read this, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, he, was, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. When Moses was brought to the Egyptian palace, he knew already where his loyalties lay. We don't know much of his years in the Egyptian palace, um, but we do know that he never acknowledged Pharaoh's daughter as his mother. It was in those years that he was growing up as a baby up until about the age of 12 before he went in to the Egyptian palace. Those were the years that he learned to be faithful to God and understand his role and especially his people. And it wasn't the Egyptians, it was the Israelites. How important is the role of the Christian mother? Many of us overlook this important role. We think that housewife is a degrading title, but there is no other work that can actually equal this. Do you know that? The greatest statesman, the greatest missionary, the greatest preacher that baptized thousands of people can never equal the importance of the role of the mother. And I state again, the mother. It is in the in mother's hands and in her ability and her responsibility that she holds to a great extent the destiny of her children who would go forth from the home and eventually shape or even lead nations. 
the impressions that are made upon those that are young will remain with them throughout all their life, for better or even for worse. And so, of course, look, there was one thing that Moses did not learn to do from his biological mother, and that was to kill. That was what he learned in the Egyptian palace. You know, in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, let's turn our Bibles there. Acts chapter 7 and verse 22. Look at what the Bible says about Moses. Acts seven twenty-two. the Bible says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. His Egyptian education made him one of the greatest generals. He was really the pride of the nation of Egypt. And it was there that he would learn to be a leader of armies, a leader of people in a sense from the worldly standpoint. But yet the Bible tells us back in Hebrews 11 that he would choose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Look, although he was trained up in Egypt, he would never forget God. He wouldn't bow down to the idols in Egypt. He would always remember that God, Jehovah God, had a special work for him. And he would eventually choose to suffer affliction. Then to enjoy what? The pleasures of sin for a season. You know, friends, we forget that sin is pleasurable. Do you know that? It appeals to our carnal senses, our old man of sin. It makes us feel good. Let's turn to another Bible text, Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. Look at this, Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. It's talking about the parable of the four grounds, and one of these grounds is being described here. Luke 8, 14. And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard, they go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Friends, there is a group in the church, those that hear the word of God and they fall short of eternal life because why? They love, the Bible says, they love the pleasures of this life. Let's also go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, talking about our days. It talks about the end times, the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, the Bible begins like this. This know also that in the last days, perilous, dangerous times shall come. Why? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded. And then it says this at the end of verse 4, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You know, in the last days, lovers of pleasures are one of the factors that make those days, our days that we're living in, dangerous. Do you know that? People are just in pursuit today of pleasure, pleasure, 
pleasure, whatever makes me feel good, whatever makes me feel happy, whatever quote unquote seems to bring joy and laughter into my life. And as a result, we come short of bringing fruit unto perfection. Friends, what do we really need? Let's turn the Bibles to Psalms chapter 16 and verse 11. Psalms 16 and verse 11. This is what we need. Look at this. Psalm 1611. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Looking at the pleasures of this world and telling yourself, this is not good for you, will never be convincing enough. Do you know that, friends? Just repeating to yourself over and over again, these pleasures of the world are not good for you. The world and its pleasures are not good for you. Don't go nightclubbing. Don't go drinking. Don't go partying. Don't go smoking. Don't go out so late at night. Don't do this and don't do that. And repeating yourself to yourself over and over and over again will never make you hate the world and love Jesus more. Do you know that, friends? Hearing a sermon every week about it will not change your life. What we need is an experience with Jesus. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. And at His right hand, there are pleasures evermore. Many of us, we still love the world because we've not learned to come into the presence of Jesus. We doesn't have, we haven't understood what it means to have a relationship with Him. Pleasures, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. And so, unless we have an encounter with Jesus, we will never hate the world. And that's why some of these texts, let, let, let's turn to another text. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. It's texts like these that baffle us. Luke 14, verse 26. Look at this. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, what do you mean? Hate your own life. Hate my parents. Some of us, we, 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 can't prior, we, we, we can't prioritize God above my family. We can't prioritize God above my, my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my spouse. We can't prioritize uh, God above my mom and my dad. You know, so many of us, we will run off with our parents and do what they say at a moment's notice. But when it comes to God telling us what to do, we got to read and reread and we, we, we can't believe it and... We just struggle with it. Why? It's not because you're a bad person in a sense. No, it's not because of that. But you are a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. You've not learnt. We've not learnt to come into His presence. And so these texts, they baffle us. They, they, they confuse us. They, they cause us stress. Let's go to another one. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. The Bible says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not 
in Him. Friends, how can we hate the world? How can we not love the world? We love it because the love of the Father is not in us. You can't have the love of the world and the love of God in your heart at the same time. Do you know those magnets? I always thought it was so interesting. You know, when you flip it around, when, when they stick to each other, but when you flip it around, they, they repel each other. There's no way that you can bring it together. When you do it, it just, boom, it splits apart, you know? And God is saying the same thing. If you have the love of the world in your heart, the love of God, the love of the Father is not in you. We are lovers of pleasure more than what? Lovers of God. How to increase your love for God, friends? You got to get to know Him. You can't love somebody you don't know. And getting to know somebody takes effort and it takes time. Moses, it was easier for him in a sense to choose the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Number one, because he had a good foundation. He had a good mother. Taught her the right way. He had faithful parents. What we looked at three weeks ago, the faith of Moses' parents. But maybe you're saying, hey, that's not fair. I wasn't raised in a good Christian home. Friends, it's not too late. All things work together for good. You know that? I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. God, He can help us. And He can help us to redeem the time that was lost. He can make us more than conquerors. He can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, no matter our background. And if you thought that Moses, really, his decision was so easy, he chose the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. The pleasures, really, of Egypt. You got to understand, he wasn't living in poverty. He was the adopted grandson to Pharaoh, who is the monarch of the greatest nation in the then known world at that time. Egypt was a powerful nation. It was a rich nation. Moses had everything at his disposal. He had life handed to him on a plate simply because who he was connected to. Do you think it was hard? Do you think it was easy? The decision that he made to choose the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. His decision wasn't that easy, friends. you got to understand that. The choice that he had to make when he was not living with his mom and dad anymore, safe from the temptations of the world and Egypt especially, and the idolatry and the licentiousness that could have taken place, he still chose the faith of Jesus. He still put his banner on the side of God after all those years, 28 years in the courts of Egypt and the palace there. He had everything at his disposal, but yet he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. However, Moses was not where God wanted him to be just yet. Let's go to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. 
In verse 10, he's brought to the Egyptian palace. He grows up, he's weaned, and at about the age of 12, he's brought into the Egyptian palace. Now we're reading verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2. Okay, second book, second chapter, verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. By this time, Moses is a grown man. Somehow, he still regarded the Israelites as his brethren. He never forgot the lessons learnt from his mother's knee. But Moses has had his own plan, you see. He killed the Egyptian that was hitting his people. He was protecting them, right? Thinking, oh, this is going to inspire confidence in me as a leader. And God was going to help him lead the Israelites out of Egypt as an army conquering their enemies. You know, that's what Egypt had taught him. Moses was a military genius. You got to understand this. But God had different plans. He had different plans altogether, you know, friends. So many times, probably more often than not, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God needed Moses to learn a more important lesson. He didn't need Moses to learn how to be a great general and a a good manager and knowing how to organize the people into groups and tribes and all these things. He didn't need them to train them to how to hold a sword and how to fight and how to defend and how to attack. And he didn't need Moses to be a man of war. God was the man of war. He needed Moses to unlearn all those unchristlike attributes. And Moses, he had this goal and vision of leading the Israelites out of Egypt because he never forgot the promise that God gave to his ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan. You're going to inherit it. And you're going to be a blessing to all the other nations around you. He never forgot the, the, the promise that Joseph gave when in his dying words, he said, don't forget to carry my bones out of Egypt when God visits you because he will surely visit you. That was in Genesis 50. And Moses never forgot that. If you read Exodus 13 verse 19, let's turn our Bibles there. Exodus 13, 19, the Israelites are coming out and look at this. Exodus 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Moses always remembered the covenant that God had made with the children of Israel, and he honored that that request of Joseph to take up his bones out of Egypt and to be buried in the good land the land of Canaan. But Moses wasn't ready. At the age of 40, he thought he was ready. He thought that, God, I've got all the training that I need to get trained. Now I'm ready to lead. But the killing of the Egyptian didn't turn out as planned. The next day, he saw two Israelites, two Hebrews fighting each other. And they said, what, you're going you're gonna to kill us too like you killed the Egyptian? Word 
had gotten out and it reached all the way to the throne of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, knowing that this was not his biological grandson, looked to kill him. And so Moses ran. It wasn't God's way for Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. God did not need Moses to be a man of war. He would take care of that himself. What God needed was a leader capable enough to handle and to lead the children of Israel. And he knew what type of people would come out of Egypt with Moses. He knew what sort of people they had become in Egypt. And if you read the history of the Israelites, it is no, that, that there is no veil that is hidden from us. The, the, their problems are well and true and clear. They were complainers. They were murmurers. They were liars. They were idolaters. Did I say that they were complainers already? At every sign of trouble, they would complain. Anything happens, they would be ready to retreat back to Egypt at a moment's notice. Always ready to complain about no water, no food. And when God gave them food, they didn't like the food. They were just always, always complaining. God had to strengthen the faith of the Israelites. And so the type of leader he needed was not Moses when he was 40 years old, a man of war, a general intelligent about modern warfare in a sense, knowing how to conquer countries and nations and to subdue them and bring them under their control. He didn't need a man like Moses at the age of 40. Can you imagine Moses at 40 leading the children of Israel out from Egypt? And and then at the first sign of trouble, what did they do? They start complaining. What would Moses as a man of war do? You, shut up. You, don't do that. You be quiet. Start commanding them. They get to the the other side of the Red Sea and and they start complaining about water. What would Moses do? Oh, he'd be so fed up with their complaining, right? To the point what? He might have killed them himself, right? Any sign of grumbling or taking up stones to stone him or Aaron? What would Moses do? Draw his sword and defend himself and, and fight back, isn't it? That was what the type of leader was Moses was at the age of 40. God knew what type of man he needed to become. And at the age of 40, in the prime of his manhood, look, Moses, he lived about 120 years, right? Let's say we live about 80 years nowadays. He was about one-third through his life. He was about the age of 27, okay? That's about the prime of your manhood, the strength of your manhood, right? Moses would have thought, God, I'm ready. But it would only be at the age of 80 that he would finally be ready. But do you think Moses knew that? Of course not. He was hoping to inspire confidence in the children of Israel. Look, I killed the Egyptian. I'm on your side. I'm on your side. But it didn't inspire any faith whatsoever as him as a leader. It's just that we don't foresee what's to come, you know. And um, sometimes we look at the glory of being a leader. People strive for positions, even in the church, in the mission. People are playing politics. We, we just try to climb the quote-unquote corporate ladder. 
to gain just some sort of respectability. But that's not what Moses needed to become. He didn't need to be more glorious, more wiser in the worldly wisdom, more and more powerful and bigger biceps. And No, that's not what God needed. Moses in in his later life would be called the meekest man that ever lived. What Moses needed to learn was the lesson of humility. When they complain, he wouldn't react. When they're ready to stone him, he wouldn't stone back. He wouldn't throw back. He had to learn to not react. He had to learn to become meek and humble. You know, I'll never forget this first advice, and I tell this to many people. I'll never forget this first advice that was ever given to me as a pastor when I was entering into pastorship of a church. This older gentleman who had been a pastor, but he was there in Taiwan studying, and not as a pastor, but for for health. And uh, he put his arm upon me. He says, Ben, remember, one church member, one problem. A hundred church members, a hundred problems. What God needs as a pastor is not a person who can just preach, speak fine, eloquent words. You know, I don't have a problem with preaching, but sometimes my tongue is too quick. What God needs is a meek man, a humble man who does not react under pressure. That's one of the things that has spoken to me as I was studying this out. He needs a man that is meek. You know what that word meek means? Humble. Lowering of yourself. Lowering your estimation of yourself. And sometimes, I'll admit it, I'm too much a man of war. Not the man that God wants us to be, to be a good leader. You know, so Moses, he, he's faithful to God. He's choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But he's not ready yet. He's not ready yet. Exodus chapter 2 verse 15, what happens? Pharaoh, he heard this thing. He sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses had to run. Pharaoh's hot on his heels. He runs to Midian out in the middle of nowhere. And we know the story. He's there for 40 years. Acts chapter 7 verse 30 says that he was there for 40 years. Doing what? We don't know much about the 40 years. And that's the thing. He was learning to become a nobody. He was the pride of the nation of Egypt. He was the one that was winning those glorious battles. But now, 40 years in Midian, a shepherd taking care of sheep. You know, they say sheep are one of the dumbest animals. Like, they they can drown in running water. That's how dumb they are, how incapable they are representing us, you know. And they're also one of the most stubborn animals too. So he was tending sheep for 40 years. Can you believe that? That was God's 
training method for Moses. Sit out in the country, country living. Sit out in the middle of nowhere. Just talk to sheep. Talk to the air. Talk to the birds. They don't reply. And that's a funny thing. That's what he had to learn. Maybe he was walking along one day and the sheep, ah, he got so angry at the sheep. It just keeps running off. Maybe that first year of being a shepherd, he must have been so angry at the sheep. But who responds? Nobody. Who talks back? No one. The sheep just go on as if nothing happened. He's talking to himself. And that's what he had to learn. When people are angry at him, just be quiet. Don't respond. Don't talk to anybody. Just don't say anything. And you know, as I was studying this out, for those that know me, I'm just convicted even more and more for my own character. This is not even for my children anymore. You know, I, I, I've been telling people, hey, the country you're living is for, for children. It's for children. You know, they need to get away and not be tempted. I realize the country living is for me. I need to be more calm. I do need to be more tender. I need to be around people less. God's got to teach me how to be meek. It took Moses 40 years to learn that. 40! Sitting there doing nothing, just taking care of sheep every day. Some of you might think, man, I would go crazy doing that. But you know, friends, if you know what that first step is to take towards God, you just got to do it. And, and, and don't go, okay, God, I'm going to go into the wilderness so you can make me a great leader. No. God's got to make you meek. That's humble, lowly, having a low estimation of yourself. Go into the country. Talk to sheep because God needs to change your deformed, wicked, ugly character. That's what God had to do with Moses. He was a murderer. Do you see that, friends? There was so much that God needed to teach Moses in the wilderness. And maybe some of us, we need to experience that today. A wilderness experience. Getting away. Learning to be a nobody. No rank of humble origin. When people looked at Christ, there was nothing special about Him that stood out. You know, when, when they came in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, they asked, who is the one that is Christ? Because he, he didn't stand taller. He didn't stand out. His clothes were no different from the rest of his disciples. They couldn't figure out of the 11 disciples and Jesus because Judas wasn't there anymore, right? He was with the mob. Who's the Christ? Which one of you is Jesus? He learned to be a nobody. He learned to be meek and humble. Friends, you want to be a great leader? I know that Moses is one of the greatest leaders that we ever have in the Bible. Leading a million strong 
of complainers and murmurers and barbarians and just oh horrible group. I would never ever wish that sort of position on my worst enemy. But that's what Moses did. But God could not do it without training him first. Learning to be a nobody. You know, this is totally opposite to our world's education today, isn't it? You got to be a somebody. You got to put yourself in a position to succeed. You got to go drinks with people. You got to go eat with them. You got to, you got to rub shoulders with the right kind of people and make friends with those that can recommend you to a better position in the end. That's not God's ways, friends. It's not God's ways. That's not his type of leadership. But I want to come back to Hebrews 11. There's one more verse that we haven't looked at yet. I read it at the very beginning, but it's verse 26. I want to look at that now. Hebrews 11:26, Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Do you know the key word here is the word esteem, counting, supposing. This was Moses' conclusion. This is why he chose the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season because he could see beyond the palace of Egypt, the glittering of the gold and the tinkling of those gold coins and the diamonds that he had at his disposal. He considered the reproach of Christ of far more value than anything that Egypt could offer. Why? How could he do that? At the very end of verse 26, it says, he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He understood the value of the reward that would be rewarded to him one day. He didn't look at the present. He looked at the future. You know, I've been reading a finance book recently. Um, it's by Dave Ramsey. Um, something about money. I forgot the title of the book, but it's like, if you live like no one lives today, you will live like no one lives in the future. If you can look into the future and understand how you will be able to not have to worry about money when you're older, it will give you some perspective of how you can learn to sacrifice today. That's his point. And that's the point that Christ is trying to make here in Hebrews eleven twenty six. when Moses, he had respect unto the payment of the reward that would come in the future. You know that word reward is only used three times in the Greek and it's all in the book of Hebrews. Nowhere else do we find this in the New Testament when it says that he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. That word reward is only used three times. Here in verse 26 is one of those. I want to show you another one. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. Look at this. It's talking about the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 10, 34 and 35. Look at this. 
For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, says Paul, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. He's talking about what? You gave me all this stuff in my need because you knew that you have something better and more lasting, enduring in heaven. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. What was the reward that Moses saw? The heavenly kingdom, the heavenly reward. But look, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for us. But yet somehow, Moses is able to understand it. Moses is able to see the recompense of the reward, even though he's living there, right there in Egypt, amongst all the pleasures of sin. How? His faith took hold of something that was not seen. The word that his mother taught him. The word that he continued to read, even though he moved into the palace of Egypt, that kept his eye single to the glory of God. But yes, God still had to work on his character, but his heart was in the right place. He desired heaven more than anything else this earth could give him. And yet, even then, he had everything at his disposal, didn't he? He could have asked for anything and it would be given to him, but... He still chose heaven. He saw the eternal real reality. How? By faith. The word of God became real to him. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Heavenly treasure. Heaven itself. I hope for that. But it's also the evidence of things not seen. Friends, does the glitter of this world just take you away? Make you forget about heaven? Have you been focusing so much on the world and its treasures, the pride of life, things, phones, cars, clothes, perfumes, how your hair looks, shoes, more money to invest so you can retire early, more and more things? Has the glitter of this world just taken you away? Maybe to some of you, it's not something that's tangible. It's, it's something you can't touch. It's, it's, it's your games. It's your movies. It's, it's your music. Something to excite your senses just for a little while. Make you, make you to forget about even this life. Never mind the future life. Have you forgotten about heaven, friends? Does heaven seem so unappealing to you? Seems too good to be true? Seems like a place that isn't desirable to you anymore? Maybe you lost your faith. Maybe you've lost the love of God in your heart. I want to end today by sharing a text in Hebrews 11. Please turn with me to verse 13. I'm going to read from 13 to 16. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, 
and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they say such things, they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, like Egypt, or in this case Abraham, he kept thinking about the country he came out from, Ur of the Chaldees, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Friends, have you lost your faith? Has your faith been weakened? And so all that you do see is just what your eyes behold, your literal eyes behold, that you've forgotten heaven. You've forgotten what the Word tells us about the sweetness of Canaan, heavenly Canaan. Well, you'll pluck a flower and it won't fade. No more death, sorrow, crying or tears, no more stress. Where it's just love evermore. Where the gold are the streets and the walls. Friends, have you forgotten to look to heaven? Maybe today you got to come back to the basics and just simply build your faith today. Ask God to open your eyes and help you to see the eternal realities, the heavenly country. Jesus says He's coming back to take us to heaven where He's prepared mansions for us. We need to reprioritize again. God, our faith, has to be first, last, and best. Jesus got to be the lover of our soul. He's got to be the apple of our eye. He's got to be our first, our first love in everything. God first, His Word first, His love first. We got to commit to Him the first thing in the morning. We got to spend time with Him somewhere throughout the day. We got to come back at the end of the day and tell him our troubles and our stresses and our life we gotta make him first and everything else second friends are you struggling in your faith this evening maybe the world has taken your eyes off of christ and the world money your job your studies your games your your shopping your fashion your there's so many things to take our eyes off of Jesus. But Moses, even though he was in Egypt, he kept his eyes on Christ. And God was able to do something great through him, even though he had to train him for another 40 years. God still was willing to work with him. Why? Because he kept his eyes on Christ. And so this evening, we're coming into the Sabbath hours. Now is the best time to refocus, reprioritize. Everything must come second, friends. Otherwise, we miss out on so many blessings. We miss out on so many miracles. We miss out on how God wants to do great things through you today. He wants to finish the work through each and every one of you. 
that we got to make the choice this evening, friends. What will it be? Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let that be our earnest prayer and to tell God, Lord, we need to admit it and say, God, help me just to reprioritize. Help me to refocus. And so sometimes we just get so busy. You know, I was talking to some of the students just now. This week has been busy. The semester has been shortened. Subjects are crammed in. But even then, that has to be second. Some of you are facing financial troubles, not enough food on the table. That still has to be second. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that as we keep Jesus and heaven and the heavenly country within our peripherals, within our eyesight, everything else, it'll change. God will begin to work through each and every one of you mightily to finish this work so that Jesus can come for a second time. That's my earnest plea in prayer. May that be our desire this evening as we recommit our lives again to God even now in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, help us to refocus this evening. Help us to look to heaven. Help us to look to your word. Help us to build our relationship with you again, O Lord. Help us, give us the love of God. We don't have it in and of ourselves naturally, Lord. Give us your love. We, we can't do it ourselves, Lord. Just, just come in and give us that love that we might know what it means to commune with you and to sup with you, to walk with you as Enoch did of old. So Father, please, as we are reprioritizing in our hearts and lives this evening, help us to put you first, last, and best in our lives today. Guide us, O Lord, continually is our earnest plea and prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com. Dot org.